0: If you are just joining us, what we've been doing over the last several weeks is we've been looking at the idea of outsiders as we see is used by the Apostle Paul in, in the New Testament. Apostle Paul, he wrote in you know, a good portion of the New Testament and a lot of what he wrote were just letters to churches. And so often the was, church was having an issue and he would write a letter to them. And, and in writing his letters, he he writes about this idea about the outsiders. And as and, and we started the series a couple weeks ago, is that I know that sometimes that can be a negative term, but you'll notice that Paul never uses it negatively. And so when he, he talks about the outsiders, and what he's referring to specifically is those people that are outside of the Christian faith. So that there's, there's those that are inside the Christian faith, so there's Christians, and there are non-Christians. This is about a clique. This is about, about, about faith. And so the idea is that there's those who believe in the, that Jesus was fully God and fully man. It's kind of the basics. And that he died on the cross for the, the sins and for your sins and the sins of the world. And then on the third day, he rose from the grave. He goes, there's people that believe that, live according to that. He goes, those people are in the faith. And there's a lot of people, as you're looking around, there's a lot of people that are outside the faith. And the interesting thing is that is that what Paul is writing to is that Christianity is not the major population. It's interesting because in the west you think about Christendom and how much of the west is influenced by Christianity. And so it's hard for us to think about Christianity in a minority position. In fact, even the Christian minority sounds really weird to us. Now, if you come from other parts of the world, that that might be true for you. And you might go, yeah, I resonate with that term. But in the West, because of, our, the, because of the Christian influence, it's just so weird for us. that for, for all of our lives, especially if we live in America, is that Christianity has been in the majority. And Christianity is still in the majority. And so but what Paul is writing to is a, is a Christian minority. And so he's writing to a Christian populations that find themselves in the middle of largely unchristian people. It's why I think it's so interesting that sometimes Christianity in our culture today... Freaks out with the direction of the country, I'll go, Josh, I mean, Christianity, what's happening? And what happens if 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 the majority of people are non-Christian? I go, well, here's here. I mean, we don't want that because we want we want the, the, the kingdom to grow. We do, we pray for that. But at the same time, we have to remember is that Christianity started from the minority position. And so it is interesting that when we read about the outsiders, if we read about it from the majority position then people think the term outsiders is make sure that the minority population you know make sure they're not they're not ostracized they're not you know they're not taken advantage of they're not oppressed but actually he's writing to these christians that find themselves in a culture that is so different than christian culture and he says it's be careful on how you walk before outsiders The majority of the population are outsiders, those that are outside the faith. And you need to be careful in how you walk before them. Now, it's an interesting thing that Paul would even say that you're accountable. And so the fact that the insider is accountable to the outsider, that actually should be shocking to us. I mean, I think one of the things that we're experiencing right now as as partisanship sort of like takes hold and grows in our country, right, is this idea of like, who cares what the other side thinks about you, right? What you want to do is you want to rally the troops of the insiders and who cares what the outsiders think of you? In fact, actually right now, you think about it, look at the news, There's big badges of honors to be hated by the other side. You know how much the other side hates me? You know how much the other side hates us? And the more that they hate us, the more it proves our validity. And that's very dangerous. Because actually what Paul is saying is, so there's, there's out, those are the outside, those, are, sorry, those that are inside the faith and those that are outside the faith. And I'm going to tell you, those that are inside the faith, you're accountable to how the people outside the faith, what they think about you, what they say about you, what they view of you, there's an accountability there. And so when people talk about partisanship, I go, the, the, the way that the other side thinks of you, you better think, yeah, it, it matters. I mean, I'm going to show you this in the news several months ago, but it was, it was a Cowboys game, right? And there was the, the picture of Ellen DeGeneres sitting next to George W. Bush laughing it up, and the internet lost its mind. How can those two be together? They're supposed to, they're, they're on different sides, they're supposed to they're hate each other, and with the internet, I love what Paul does, Paul says the way that the other side, the way that the outsider views you, it absolutely, it matters, and so Paul says something very different. You have a responsibility to those that are outside the faith. We so said the church was being persecuted by those outside the faith. And so this is why we've been looking at this, especially as our our culture grows in this divide that we 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 can't we can't we can't like serve the same the same outcome. And so. In this, in week one, what we did is we, we looked at this idea that everybody, you used to be an outsider. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 2. You used to be an outsider. Now you're inside the faith, but just don't forget, like you used to be an outsider. Do you know that, that, that God, God has no grandchildren? You were not grandfathered into the faith. Maybe you grew up in the church. Maybe you went to church since, since you were week one, but, you, but the, God doesn't have any grandchildren. You were brought into the faith, and when you were brought into the faith, it wasn't by your own works. And in fact, this is what the scriptures so clearly teach. You were not saved by your works, but you're saved by grace. So even the fact that you're now an insider, you, don't, you can't even take credit for that. And so when you look down on outsiders, just remember that one that used to be you, and it's not because you worked your way in that now you're an insider. Actually, by the, by the blood of Jesus, are you an insider, and so this is what Paul's getting at. And so week one, we just reminded like, you, you used to be an outsider. Remember what that used to be like. And then last week, as we looked at week two, was this idea of walking in wisdom towards outsiders. We saw that it is proactive. It's strategic. It moves people closer to Jesus. And it's personal. Unfortunately, often it's, in Christianity, it's, reacted haphazard moves people away from Jesus and is cold and impersonal and so this morning we're going to look at another way is is his says to walk properly walk properly before outsiders and by the way next week we're going to talk about how do we interact with morality and outsiders oh nobody's talking about that anymore are they huh (laughs) there's no relevance there right so this morning we're actually, we're, we're going to look at another letter from Paul. And, and when we do this, he's writing to the churches in, 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 in Thessalonica. And, and just so you know, like when Paul writes a letter, often we only get one part of the conversation. So we're trying to fill in the other part of the conversation, right? And so if, if I'm talking on the phone and you're only hearing my side of the conversation, there are certain things that you could gather, but there are certain things that would just be left, like, I, I don't know. Like if, if, uh, if I was talking with somebody and I said, hey, how's your mom doing? I go, oh, well, then, let me rephrase that. I mean, it would be better if I said, um, hey, I heard about your mom. You go, oh, okay. So this person, we don't know if it's a guy or girl, but uh, this person has a mom. <laughs> right? That's all that we know. And it could be something good because, hey, I, I heard about your mom. Yeah, she got the job. Like it, it could be something like that, but it could also be something negative. So you go, well, something's going on with mom. And then if I said the next question I had, it's like, So how how serious is it? You go, Oh, that's not a good thing. That's not a good that is not a good question. So now there's a mom that something something's going wrong with her. And then maybe I said something like, So how long will she be in the hospital? Like, Oh, it's good. Okay, I'm gonna pray that the surgeons would, would do what they need to do and the recovery would be quick. You go, oh, so she's already in the hospital, but now she needs surgery. So you could actually start to fill in the blanks. There's certain things that you would know, but there's a lot of things that you wouldn't know. And so when we read, the, we, when we read the, the, the letter to the Thessalonians, one of the things that was happening on with the Thessalonians, just to give you a little bit of background, is that there was a portion of the community that was working really hard, and there was another portion of the community that was not working really hard, and they had become what we say was idle. And so... Those that were working really hard were providing for those who weren't working at all, and so Paul, in, in both First and Second Thessalonians, you can read them both, and especially in Second Thessalonians, he talks about that's why he's talking about the idol. And so there's there's lots of ideas and theories. Some people believe that they weren't they, well, they just weren't working. Partly they were taking advantage of the generosity of those who were. And other people believe that they weren't working because they're like, well, Jesus is returning, so why get a job? And so really, and and and, and in Second Thessalonians, Paul's like, go go get a job, like go go work, <laughs> get a job. Yes, Christ is coming back, but you need to be working until He does. And so so this is what's happening in the church is that there's a group, there's a population of the church that's working really hard and have and have the means, right? And they're providing for those who have no jobs. And so Paul's addressing this. Some are being generous. Others are taking advantage of that generosity. Have you ever had somebody take advantage of your generosity? That'll flip the switch quick, won't it? Where you're like, I'm going to do something real nice. And then you do that. And then you're taken advantage of and you think to yourself, this is why I'm not generous, right? This is why I'm not generous and, and I'm not going to do that again. And I, <laughs> I learned my lesson. I'm not going to do that again. And, and what happens is if you're generous enough and you get taken advantage of enough, you, you just realize I'm just going to stop being generous. Or I'm going to be generous in really, really safe places. Only, peop- only people that I know 100% for sure that they will not take advantage of me. But then the problem is that that does something in your own heart. Right? The generosity, spoiler alert, is not just about the other person. And so if what happens is when we're taken advantage of, is when we stop being generous, there's something that goes wrong in us. And so Paul is actually addressing this issue. So if you've got your Bibles... Turn with me, we're going to go to First Thessalonians, chapter four. We'll start in verse nine. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Let me read that again. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. And so here, Paul's talking about this idea that Christian charity is is being experienced. And charity in the sense of like you're giving, you're caring, not just your money. It's interesting that when we think about charity, we think about just money. But you're giving your time, you're giving your expertise, you're giving your energy, you're giving your money. Is that actually what he's saying is that Christian Christian charity is being experienced. And so he says this, this brotherhood concerning brotherly love, Philadelphia, is actually the word. You knew a little Greek, didn't even know it, right? Philadelphia, brotherly love. That's actually the word in the Greek. The city of brotherly love. But if you've ever been to Philadelphia, you may not feel all of that (laughs) brotherly loveness, right? But that's the idea. The city of brotherly love. Which actually, as he's addressing the community, one of the things he's addressing the community is that, by the way, something that's unique to Christianity is that Christianity, that the church is much more family than it is business. It's actually a lot of times, unfortunately, in our, in our culture, in our Western culture, that the church becomes a lot more business than it becomes family. Churches become about how many people show up, what, what are the budgets, what's the budget look like, how big of buildings can we build. In the pastor worlds, they say it's all about the butts and the bucks. You know how many how many butts are in the seats? This is how pastors talk, right? Uh, how many butts are in the seats, and what's the what's the butts in the box? And it's interesting that you go that the, the church then becomes much more business than it becomes family. But what Jesus is talking about often, often is about you guys are a family, like you 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 belong to each other. If you've got your Bibles, flip with me quickly over just to John. Because a couple of spots, there's all sorts of spots I could take you, right? But in John chapter 13, verse 34, this is Jesus speaking before he goes to the cross. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. Jesus says, I'm, I'm telling you this. I want you to love. As a community, I want you to love and I want you to care for each other in the same way that I have cared for you. And what do we see about Jesus? Jesus traveled with them, spent time with them, washed, you know, as we see here, He uh, washes their feet, serves them, heals them. He says, I want you to care for each other in the same way that I cared for you. And when you do that, the world will know that you belong to me. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't say people will know that you're my disciples. They're going to look at your budget and they're going to know. that. Oh man, that church. That church belongs to Jesus. And not even the population of the church. Like, oh, they're going to look at thousands and thousands of people and they'll go, oh, that church, they belong to Jesus. They're going to look at the building and they'll go, that building, they belong to Jesus. Jesus says nothing about that. They're going to look at all of the programs that they offer and they'll go, they belong to Jesus. What Jesus says Not that, that, by the way, not that those things aren't important. They can be, they're helpful. Budgets are helpful. Programs are nice. But when Jesus talks about the identifying marker for his people, he says it's going to be the way in which they care for one another. Matthew chapter 12. They come to get Jesus. While he was still pe- speaking to the people, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hands toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and sister and mother one of the things just a little background on this text is that it was all fine and dandy that jesus was claiming to be things like god when he was within the family and kind of nearby but as his ministry starts to grow and the family at some level believes he's a little bit delusional right, as, as, as you would, right, I mean, just to, just to be honest, your, your brother grows up, and he's like, I think I'm God, you're like, no, no, I, that's the problem, you think that's true, it's not true, <laughs> and so we see this, right, we see him raise up, and so you, you could see how his family would be like, no, we saw him, we raised him up, so they, they, go, to, they, go, to, for about, they go to collect him, can we talk to him, because this is not okay, and then he says, who's my, who's my mother, Who's my brother? Your mother and your brothers are here to get you. And he goes, Who are they? I'll tell you who they are. There's people here. Redefining family. Now beautifully, right, is that the mother of Jesus, the brothers of Jesus, from what we can tell, especially James, early on in the church, they they, they embrace eventually I think it's so difficult, but they actually embrace his his identity. And so, so he says, but, but you know, this idea is like, who's, who's my family? Who belongs to me? And you know, it was this, this, the people that are here. And so it's really interesting that Jesus, early on, what he's doing is he's, he's redefining even, even family relationships. You're to love each other like you love family. The church is more of a family than it is a business. And so, here, he says, "Your family." Now, in our culture, it's a little different, right? Because some of you, truth be told, you probably love your Christian family more than you love your real family, right? <laughs> like, don't treat don't treat other Christians like you treat your brother and sister. But actually, what he, what he's getting at is like when your family, when you belong to each other, like there's this sense of mutual care. Of of belonging that's deeper than just we happen to like hang out together. We like the same things. I mean, with my brother, my sister, we're we're very similar in very things, but we're very different in other things. We don't always agree. You know, but at the end of the day, we're we're family. Like they're, they're, they're like, geez, well, my sister's here, my my my, my dad's here. Like, like we're 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 family. And the problem I think sometimes in the, in, in the in the church. When it becomes more business, it becomes more consumeristic, right, than family. It becomes this place of like, well, like, what can the the church do for me? What will it benefit me? How will this church benefit me? That's not how you think about a family. You know, in a family, when people are like, sometimes you're, you, know, you guys have a, a brother or a sister who's made dumb decisions. No, it's because you're the brother or sister who's made dumb decisions. <laughs> I'm teasing. Maybe. Uh, right? And there comes this point where you're like, you're like, you just kind of think to yourself, but yeah, they're, they're still my brother. They're still my sister. We belong together. There's something that bonds us together that's deeper than just common likes and interests and disinterests. And so I often think when people have approached the church with just this idea, what can the church do for me? I think to myself, yeah, well, the church will do lots of things for you, but I think you're going to miss something much, much deeper, and that's belonging to a family, a community, of people that, that, that just kind of love and care for one another. I mean, can you imagine this? Think about this. <laughs> if somebody said to you, or if you asked somebody, you said, hey, how's your family doing? And they go, oh, family's doing really well. We are making more money now than we've ever made in our whole history as a family. You go, that's an odd answer. Like that's, that's a really odd answer, Right? What do we want to do? How is your family? How's your mom? We want to know how is the care going. How is the, how are the tensions? How is the family? How is it growing? You know, what are the interest? How, but how is your family doing? That's what we want to know. And I think, as the church and culture go a little bit like this, but as the culture experiences more and more broken families, more and more broken families, families become more and more broken, I think how beautifully the church can be possibly positioned in a place that can, that can offer healthy and whole family-like relationships where we really do become brothers and sisters. It's something very unique to the Christian faith. And what Paul says here to this church in Thessalonica, what he says now is he goes concerning the brotherly love, you have no need to, for anyone to write to you about this. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for indeed that's what you are doing, all the brothers throughout Macedonia. And so he's actually, Paul's writing him a huge encouragement. I'm talking about the church is a family. You guys belong to each other. And you you know what he says here? You're doing it. I don't need to write to you about that. There's other churches he had to write to about that. Like, you guys are a family. Figure it out. Uh, You know, he had to write those sorts of things. But to the church in Thessalonica, he's like, no, I I don't need to write to you about this. You are already doing this. And not only are you doing this for your people, like right here in Thessalonica, but like all throughout Macedonia, your brotherly love and, and your sisterly love, it is spilling over into the other regions, the other churches, other places. You guys are doing this well. The Christian community, the Christian charity is being experienced. The problem is not that Christian charity isn't being experienced, because it is. The problem is is that Christian charity is being exploited. And then this is what he says in verse, the rest of verse 10. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent upon No one. So when your generosity is exploited, remember what I said. You want? I, I don't want to do that anymore. Why would I be generous? All they're going to do is exploit me and take advantage of that. Why would I be generous? And this is what you think to yourself. This is what I think to myself. This is what you think to yourself. Whenever you're generous and you're taken advantage of, you go, I'm going to stop doing that. And what does Paul say? Paul says, no, don't do that. Right? He says, good job. Continue doing it. And I I do it more and more. Don't let it stop you. I want to urge you to do it more and more. But then he goes on to set boundaries for those who are doing the exploiting. It's interesting because you say people that are just idle. Where do you go? They, work, they lack a work ethic and they lack aspirations. Like goals, like do something. A goal and then the work ethic to achieve said goal you don't have one of those, then you're going to sit idly by. And so maybe you've got somebody in your life that just sits idly by, and you might even have the conversation like, what do you want to do with your life? Like, I don't know. Like, okay, that's a problem. Like, let's have some goals. And then maybe they have a goal, and then you're asking yourself, how are you working towards that goal? Like, what, are, what steps are you taking? And actually, it's interesting that Paul, Paul deals with both of these. Does he not? Verse 11, aspire to live quietly. Have, I want your aspirations, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's sort of uh, hyperbole in, in the Greek, but that kind of the, the idea is, I want your aspirations to have no aspirations. Like, oh, like, how aren't you, I want you to aspire to, to be, to like, have, a, have a drive to live peacefully, to live restfully. Which is interesting, saying that to people who are already idle. But what he's really saying is, I want you to aspire not to disrupt the community. And when you sit idly by, you are disrupting the community. I'm not doing anything. That's the problem. That is actually literally the problem <laughs> and is bringing disruption to those, and, and bitterness, right? Bitterness to those who are doing something. And so I want your goal to be one that can live within the community peacefully. And then that's why he says, I don't want you to what? Mind your own business. Mind your own business. Have you ever found it to be true that those who can't handle their own business like to handle the business of others? (laughs) Isn't it ironic Somebody who doesn't have their own stuff together starts talking to you about how you don't have your stuff together. And you're like, okay, 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 okay. So about that, (laughs) right? What are you doing? Everything raises up in you, right? Those who can't handle their own finances love to be critical of how other people handle their finances, right? Those who can't control their anger become enraged at those who cannot control their anger. And I'll tell you who's a real gossip, right? (laughs) (laughs) Right? And Paul says, You're idle. If if you're idle, mind your own business. Because he knows this. This is, by the way, it's funny because it's true today, but it's true here too that the idle that those who are idle who have nothing to do they, they they consume themselves with other people's business if you read in second thessalonians I, what i love is is paul basically says those who aren't busy at work are just busy bodies <laughs> i go that's true is the less that you have to do the more you're concerned with what other people are doing by the way it's probably specifically those maybe who live in a retirement community nearby. <laughs> have you found this to be true? Yeah. <laughs> 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 that as people retire and they have less, you know, that's less to do, but they're, they're, not, they're not at their jobs anymore because they're retired and, 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 and gratefully so. But then they start, if they're not careful, engaging and over-engaging in other people's affairs. And Paul says, if you're idle aspire have the aspirations to live peacefully in the community and like mind your own business like take care of your own stuff first and then he says work hard have a work ethic go out and do something provide like provide for yourself work for the community work in the community and so to the Christians who are being generous, he says, keep doing it. Like, like, and, and more so, Like, don't let this stop you from being generous. But to those who are exploiting the Christian generosity and Christian charity, what he says here, he's like, stop it. And because when you do so, you are not, you are not walking properly. That's what he says, you're not walking properly before outsiders. And so Christians who are exploiting the generosity of other Christians, what Paul says is outsiders see that and they go, what's that about? If what the outsider sees of your life, whether the outsider is inside this building or the outsider is outside this building, if what the outsider sees of you is that all you ever do is receive Christian charity but never give Christian charity, he goes, you are not walking properly in front of outsiders. Earlier I said there's a danger, there's a danger when we look at the church as more of a business than a family. So part of the consumerism that runs through our churches today is that we look at the business. The church is a business more than a family. What can it do for me? How much does it want from me? And what are the benefits that I receive from my membership? And uh, how much do I invest in? And what will I? What's the what's the ROI? What's the return on investment? It's back to me. And when we look at the church like that, there's a real danger because we miss we miss something something far I think far far deeper. But I think that then there's another danger than... If all we ever do is we, we, we look at what the church can give to us and what the church... And by the way, I don't mean just the organization of the church. I mean the people of the church. If all we ever do is look what it can give to us, it does something inside of us. If all we ever do is receive Christian charity, but we never give Christian charity, that's a problem. Now... It's interesting because in our context, because a lot of this is financial, in our context we have social programs, right, that take care of like, people who can't, who can't afford, so we don't see this, the church does not play this role in our community and our culture as much anymore because there's social programs, but it's interesting. You listen to people talk about the social programs and there is this kind of resentment. Why are my taxes, except for now, instead of like giving to the church, it's like I, I gave to the government. And, uh, and, and, but why are my tax dollars supporting those who, are, who, who, who can work? And there's a difference between uh, can work or you know, are able to work, but unwilling to work. There's a difference there. But, but, but why are my tax dollars going to, to, to fund these ideas? And these? So there's actually even this animosity today. Why is it, and it's not generosity because it's, it's taxes, but why is it being taken advantage of? But I think that we probably in ours is that there, there's Christians who only receive the benefits of the community but never play a part of the benefits of the community. Some of that's financial for sure, you know. But it's not just finance. I mean, because for, for instance, like, the, yes, it does cost. Like, the, we rent this space, the church pays me, we've got a salary. And so there's people, so that we don't have to, like, at the door, charge. We, know, we would never do that. But, you know, but I, you know there, there's no, like, hey, so here's how much it costs. To you know, we would never do that. But, but, but really, it's because of the generosity and, and the faith uh, and, and people who are, are serious about what God says, uh, according to their finances, that we're able to do these sorts of things and have a local community here. But it's not just the finances. It could be time. You know, you expect other people to invest time into you, but you never invest time into somebody else? I, mean, I know people that like, like, I've got, I've got seven mentors. I'm like, wow, that's a lot of mentors. How many people are you mentoring? Well, nobody quite yet. I'm like, so you expect everybody to pour into you, but you're never willing to like invest your time with other people. That's not how a family works. Or care You expect everyone to care for you, but you never care for anybody else. All you're doing is taking and benefiting from the Christian charity, but never giving to the Christian charity. I've been in ministry long enough, long enough now, to have received phone calls and emails and messages. They say something like, "I'm not going to go there anymore because I was gone for four weeks and nobody said anything." To which typically I would respond, "I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm sorry for that. That's not. That's not I, I you know. I, I try to say maybe we could do a better job with that, but I also challenge in that too because you've been gone for four weeks. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and nobody said anything to me. I go." So nobody checked on you. Like, no. I'm like, okay, so just out of curiosity, in those four weeks, who did you check in on? Oh. Oh. Yeah. See, what you want is you want the care and the concern. Because what you're saying is you were gone for four weeks and nobody cared. But that means that these other people were also gone out of your life for four weeks and you you. You didn't invest the care there. And I'm not saying that there's not an issue here. What I'm saying is that there's also probably an issue here. I don't like that. Well, okay, I get that. I I understand that. See, I I think that if, if, if all you're ever going to do is take the Christian charity but never give the Christian charity, what will happen to you is you'll become this entitled Christian. The church owes me. The people owe me. They owe me the money, they owe me the time, they, owe me the, they invest and care. And you know what, you know, the, the issue with entitlement, what entitlement does is entitlement steals generosity from the giver and gratitude from the receiver. So the giver is no longer generous and the receiver no longer shows gratitude. And, and if, if, if what you're going to do is, is take Christian community and charity, but never, never add to that, that entitlement will creep in and set hold. It's a good thing we don't have an issue with entitlement nowadays, huh? (laughs) Oh, Paul, speak something relevant to us, please. (laughs) That's my message to those who only receive from Christian charity but never give to Christian charity. Now my, my message to those who, who give it and you feel like you're often taken advantage of a couple things for you, because I, I know the feeling. and by the way, I've been in both of these, and so have you. Um, <laughs> a couple things. I think one, it, it is OK to set boundaries. This is actually what Paul's doing. Go work hard, you know, uh, mind your own business. <laughs> aspire. So he actually is setting some boundaries, and actually, if you read uh, for, uh, Second Thessalonians, you'll see him set more boundaries because it, this doesn't seem to—it doesn't seem like this works. And so he writes another letter and says, "Let me let me readdress the idol." And so, um, so he sets more boundaries there. So I would say, like one, it's actually it's okay to to set boundaries. But the other thing is because what happens is that you're generous. So what happens is you're generous, you're taken advantage of. And you think to yourself, I'm not going to do that anymore. And you become bitter. Those entitled, those, those entitled people. And you become bitter. So for that, just remember that generosity is actually a blessing. See we begin the, when the bitterness sets in we buy into the lie that the generosity was all about them. Paul is interesting because it's not recorded in the gospel but Paul's quoting Jesus so that he gets it, so he must be getting it some, from somewhere else from other Jesus sayings but Paul in, in Acts he quotes Jesus and he says Jesus says for it is it is better to give than to receive. And truth be told if I was going to do some sort of like Christian multiple choice Test And I was like, uh, it is better to A, give or B, receive. Like, oh, no, it's totally better to give than to receive, right, Christmas? It's better to give than to receive. The problem is, is that when we give and we give and it's taken advantage of or it's, it's, um, it's exploited, we think to ourselves, how dare they? And, and, and they're getting away with it and, and, and they're ripping me off. And you actually begin to believe the lie that the generosity was all about them. I actually truly do believe that it is better to... And this is actually I think why Paul says, actually, don't stop your Christian charity. For it is better to give than to receive. I mean, that's part of the, the, the Christian faith. And so don't stop it because what it it will do is it will steal the generosity out of you. And it really truly is a blessing to be able to be generous. And you will receive benefits from that. And the benefits may or may not come from the other person. And the other thing I want to remind you of is that you you serve a generous God. You serve a generous God. God, I could ask you this question. Is it wrong to behave in such a way in which you know, you know the other person's going to be generous? And so you take advantage of that. Is it wrong to to make a decision knowing that the other person is going to be generous and then you can take advantage of that? You'd go, yes, 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 yes. To which my next question would be, so let me ask you this. Have you ever engaged in sin and prior to engaging in said sin, you thought to yourself, God will forgive me for this later? Whoa, 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 okay, okay. That's totally different. Totally different. Which I would agree, that is totally different. It's far more offensive to do that to God than for for another human to do that to another human, right? This is far more offensive. And yet, we, you, have taken advantage of the generosity of God. And fortunately for us, fortunately for you, God is not up in heaven and go, well, that's the last time I do that. <laughs> I, mean, I, I learn my lesson. This is why I'm not generous to these people because all they do is take advantage of my generosity. But what do we see? We see, we certainly, we see, we see people exploiting and misusing God's generosity. You have exploited and misused God's generosity. And what does he do? He does set his boundaries, right? But he does not cease his generosity. And so don't let bitterness sit in. For you serve and follow a very generous God. And so Paul says, Christian community and charity, Christian charity is being experienced and that's good. Christian charity is being exploited and that is not good. Keep expressing it. Stop exploiting it. For those who are just just receiving Christian charity but never giving Christian charity, start giving Christian charity. And those who are feeling like they're taken advantage of, yeah, set the boundaries, but, but don't let the boundary be, I'm going to stop being generous, for you serve a generous God who's been generous with you, and when you are generous with those and those that are around you, you reflect, you reflect the God you serve. And Paul says, and when you do that, you are then walking properly before outsiders. For your generosity says something about the God you serve. And your exploita- your exploitation of that generosity says something about what you believe about the God you serve. May we continue to be as a church community a church of generosity. And not just financially but 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 relationally, with care, with time, with energy, with expertise, may we be a community of generosity. And in doing so, may we experience it, may we give it, may we exchange it. And in doing so, may we compel those that are outside the faith, and specifically those that are outside the faith, but you're here this morning inside the building. May you see that. And maybe maybe won over by the gospel. That you, you experience a community that is mutually loving and caring and expressing and experiencing Christian charity and you think to yourself, I want to belong to a community like that. The beautiful news is you're invited. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your generosity. God, I am sorry to you personally for the places I, the places we we have exploited that generosity. We've taken advantage of that generosity. We thank you that your character is 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 is, is faithful enough and consistent enough where we, we know that it's true. We we can predict how how you'll respond in generosity. And yet I'm sorry that for the places where we and I have have taken that knowledge and used it not for faithfulness but for unfaithfulness. May we as a community be a community that that continually and increasingly so expresses Christian charity love and care and concern. May we not be a church that just receives it but never gives it but may we be a church that exchanges it and loves and cares for one another and in doing so that those that are outside the faith may want to come and be a part of what you are doing. May it not be our logos that compels, may it not be our building, our budget, our programs, may that not be what compels people. May our love for one another reflect your love for us and compel people to belong. We love you. We pray for these things in your name. Amen.